This is a Federal News Network podcast. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband is recovering, but the attack at the Pelosi home in San Francisco has Congress rattled once again about security. More anxiety comes from the possibility of a party switch in the House or Senate or both. Here with what's going on, WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And Mitchell, let's talk about security because that terrible attack really has people rattled. It's not even the Capitol building. It's anywhere in the United States we keep seeing incidents happening. Right. This really has everyone's concern on Capitol Hill, and particularly not only here in the Capitol, as you alluded to, but also when members are out campaigning across the country, when they're out in their home districts. Capitol Police have tried to address this in recent years. They've actually established field offices in some places across the country. Ironically, a field office for Capitol Police in San Francisco, where House Speaker Pelosi's home is located. But there are limitations to what can be done. As Capitol Police point out, they have roughly 18 video feeds coming into their command center. One of these video feeds apparently captured this break-in, but because they don't literally have eyes on every single feed, which they can't do, there was a slight delay in getting to this. Um, California Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, who heads the House Administration Committee, she fired off a letter to Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger, basically raising questions about how much protection is being done uh, for those in the line of presidential succession. Of course, House Speaker Pelosi is second in line in succession. She has been the target of all kinds of threats, probably more than any other lawmaker in Congress. And basically, Lofgren wants to know more about what kind of things are going to be done for not only the members, but their family members. And then also more broadly, what are some of the issues that are going to be taken up by Capitol Police in terms of just regular lawmakers who are going back and forth to their districts? Now, obviously, it's cost prohibitive to have protection for all of these lawmakers, more than 500 of them in the House and Senate. But they do feel that there are some reforms that can still be taken. And Capitol Police are now pushing for more money to take on some of those responsibilities. Yes, because the political tone, as you mentioned, I mean, there are candidates that are wearing bulletproof vests. And we've seen candidate after candidate, both for Congress and in some of the governor's races in New York, the candidates were attacked or their homes were or both. Has Manger answered that at all? I mean, I mean, I'm probably still trying to figure out what their procedures should be. Right. They're doing a lot of things behind the scenes, and they have certainly done things, a lot of things here at the Capitol. But it's this other issue where the members are really more at risk in their districts that they're trying to figure out exactly what is the balance? How much can they do? Now, there have been some things that they've done in recent years where they basically loosened up the purse strings so that some lawmakers, should they choose to, can actually use some of the money that would go to their offices to actually uh, uh, get security, you you know, cameras or get uh, additional security for their own protection. And that it really comes down to the lawmaker. It's up to them. So they're trying to give uh, the individual lawmakers in their offices a little bit more flexibility as they try to work out these issues. All right. Well, that's another one of a wait and see, I guess. Let's hope nothing else happens between tomorrow and then when the new Congress is seated early next year. And a lot of the polls and the pundits are saying that the House could switch from Democratic control to Republican if
if that should happen, what would it mean, do you think, that would cause some debates that maybe haven't happened so far? Well, this is really one of the biggest potential issues is over raising the debt limit. That one is coming back once again. Uh, if, as expected, the House is overtaken by Republicans and retaken by the Republicans, the House's top Republican, Kevin McCarthy, who's likely to become House Speaker after Speaker Pelosi, he has hinted he would not be afraid to use a vote on the debt limit to force President Biden to accept deep cuts, and those could include Social Security, Medicare, other areas. Uh, due to concerns about this, Democrats are urging the party's leaders to use the lame duck session coming up to raise the debt limit. Otherwise, lawmakers say they could be facing a deadline early next year or later next year on this issue. Among the discussions uh, is if the administration could somehow unilaterally raise the debt or eliminate the cap altogether. Republicans, by the way, are facing some external pressure on this issue. Former President Trump has pressed for the GOP to use the debt limit to force cuts. Uh, a Democratic congressman, Brendan Boyle of Pennsylvania, has called this a loaded gun pointed at the U.S. economy. Uh, but Republicans say the spending that has taken place over the last few years just cannot continue. They're looking for ways to reel it in. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office has estimated that the federal government will run a deficit annually of more than $1.5 trillion. So this is one of the big looming issues. We're speaking with WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And that whole idea of the entitlements and Social Security, have the Republicans spelled out precisely what they would do? Because often what is taken as a cut is maybe a reduction in future growth gets translated as, you know, in the mass media as a cut. So do we really know the scope of what they're proposing? We don't really because they've, you know, come out with very general commitments to uh, reining in inflation, but there's no specific proposals really related to it. There's a lot of talk about, as you mentioned, like reeling back uh, spending or making cuts or making maybe some reductions in some areas. Now, Democrats uh, have had really little to say about inflation inflation because there's not a lot that they've been able to do about it. But they have been warning about the future of Medicare and Social Security, which they know are uh, impotent, you know, big potent issues for retirees. They have focused on a proposal that started with Florida Senator Rick Scott, who heads the Republican Senate campaign arm. He made this earlier this year. Essentially, it calls for Congress to reauthorize those two programs every five years. Some have said they could even be uh, reauthorized every year. Now, there's also discussion about Republicans about raising the age for collecting Social Security benefits from 67 to 70, also higher premiums for health care coverage. Now, Scott has denied he wants to take away benefits from seniors, obviously, with the election right around the corner. But what many Democrats are warning is that, that this could actually have some effect of some kind of reduction in benefits. I was on a call with Virginia Democratic Representatives Abigail Spanberger, Elaine Luria, and Jennifer Wexton, all of them in tough races trying to get reelected. They were among those um, making this siren call. And then on the Republican side, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell earlier this year actually criticized Scott's proposal. So there is some gap between them. I think basically McConnell doesn't want to wade into the political issue right now and just wants to see if he can get Republicans to retake the Senate. But it is an example of an issue that's likely to come up more if Republicans can gain control of the House and possibly the Senate. Well, they're looking for any way I guess they can to control the growth and spending in government and really the annual appropriations for government agencies hasn't really grown that much. It's the entitlements that are runaway, if you want to use that term, but that's where the, that's where the opportunities are. 
Exactly. So. That's where the big saving is, is really going to happen, if it is going to happen. All right. And that brings up the issue of federal pay. And the president has proposed a pretty good pay increase, I think 4.6% next year for federal employees. Does that look to be in danger at this point? Right now, it looks like it's probably going to still get through. The National Treasury Employees Union is actually pushing for a higher increase in the coming fiscal year. Uh, They're citing the information from the Federal Salary Council that shows federal salaries continuing to slip against the private sector. But I think there will be a lot of noise about federal pay going up. But I think ultimately, that will probably stay in place, but there will be a huge argument about where it goes uh, moving forward. Uh, Federal workers, according to this uh, Federal Salary Council uh, estimate, as you know, the estimate was that they have about 24% less in wages than their private sector counterparts. That's up slightly from about 22.5% uh, from the previous year. Uh, there's also, as you know, debate on how the pay is calculated. Uh, critics say that if federal benefits are included, that it would actually be much higher for federal workers. But this is going to be a big issue. And some Republicans, uh, particularly more conservative Republicans, particularly if they get elected, they have also indicated that they would not be uh, so hesitant about going into the area of potential government shutdowns and issues like that uh, to put more pressure on the government to cut back on costs. Right. And then there's the final issue of federal agencies themselves should the oversight committee chairman change because of a flip in the House by party. That could really be something that federal agencies would feel because the oversight regime would change. Right. And there's definitely going to be a sea change in in connection with that. And that could mean a lot of big uh, changes, as you know, in connection with uh, federal agencies and how they're operated. Uh, Many Republicans for years, of course, have been skeptical of places like the Education Department. Uh, They all are usually taking out the knives and and looking for areas where things can be cut. Uh, The Judiciary Committee is likely to be overtaken, uh, taken over by Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan. He has identified some basic areas where he thinks that Republicans really need to address uh, cutting federal programs that he thinks that are bloated, uh, making changes to the farm bill, for example. Uh, Kentucky Republican James Comer would likely take over the Oversight and Reform Committee. Uh, There's a whole series of things that they would like to do to shift the basic argument over the pay and and the not only the pay, but the funding of federal agencies, which they they believe have just grown uh, much too large, although Democrats, on the other hand, say they really haven't gone up that much, that it's other types of spending that was related to the pandemic and other types of things. Well, we'll know more by tomorrow evening, we hope. Let's hope it doesn't take weeks to find out one That's way or right. the other. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Thanks so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology 
at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think it would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances 
um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So 
So helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Apply a little splash when your windshield's getting dirty. Just apply a little splash when your windshield's full of grime, bugs, dirt, and snow. Just use a little splash and be safe on the road. Splash, splash, splash. Apply a little splash when your windshield's getting dirty. Just apply a little splash. See safely on the road when you apply a little splash.